welcome to TLDR for Parents, a place for busy parents who want to be the best they can be. I'm Suzanne McCauley, parent, educator, consultant, and reader of all things parenting. All right, episode seven. Today we are talking about part four of this awesome book, How to Raise an Adult by Julie Lithcott-Hames. And today I have a special co-host with me because Megan was not available. And this co-host is the father of my children, also um, my husband, and the person with whom I parent, Ryan. So say hi to the people, Ryan. Hey, everyone. We talked about the first three parts of this book already, in which Julie Lithcott-Hames makes a case for a different way of parenting. In the last section, she outlines how a parent could do that if they so wished. So if you haven't listened to the last episode, I highly recommend going back to catch that. In the first episode about this book, we talked about part one and part two. In the second episode about this book, we talked about part three. That one was kind of long. And so today we're back to talk about part four, which is called Daring to Parent Differently. I loved this section. She opens this part with a chapter called Reclaim Yourself. So she opens the chapter with a story about a Seattle parent and senior college counselor at a school. This person's on the phone with their mother, and she says to her mom that she's cold and wet and muddy on the sideline of her kid's soccer game. And the mom was not especially sympathetic. She says, I have no idea why you're standing out there. You aren't showing your kids anything. If you want to show them that athletics are important, you should be going on a run yourself. Or if you want to show them what is valuable to you, go home and read a book or get together with some of your own friends or go to a play, then come home and talk about it. Why don't you go do some stuff of your own? That's you getting a life. Your kids will observe that and think, okay, that's how you get a life. And they'll want to go get one. But the way it is, they're going to get to be 25 and think, I never saw grown-ups living a life. I only saw them doing stuff for me, driving around, standing somewhere on a Saturday morning. So I think this is an interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. I also want to say I think there's balance because... I think we need to go to some of our kids' stuff for sure. I'm not saying you miss every soccer game of the season, but it's okay to miss a few to pursue some stuff for yourself. Well, that's interesting to think about missing, not being there for every single event in pursuit of showing them what it's like to be an adult beyond just having kids, but to be a fully fleshed out adult. Truly. And I think about with our kids in particular, we have one night of the week where we're all... We have three kids and two drivers right now. So, and they, all three kids have an activity and there's only two of us. So that in itself is, you know, teaching the lesson that we can't all be everywhere for everyone. So I think that it's just something to talk about and maybe call attention to, to have the conversation. She goes on to say, we practice what a sociologist calls concerted cultivation Um, Thanks to a family-packed calendar, plus the belief that to be a good parent means to always be there with and for our kids, and the looming threat that the Joneses are doing more to get their kids ahead than we are, every day feels like a leg in a race of unknown duration, and every task feels to be of consequence. So I thought that was interesting, too, because that is how it can feel sometimes. Have we signed the kids up for enough stuff? Do they have a passion project? Do they have a job on their resume? Do they have this? Do they have that? Are they playing sports? Are they involved enough at school? Do they have enough extracurricular activities? Are they playing an instrument? Like all that stuff can just get so overwhelming. But also as we pack the calendar, 
we're removing any margin we had for us to have our own lives and pursue our own hobbies and our own tasks. So I don't know. I thought that was interesting. And then um, she says, if you've ever mistaken your child's achievements for your achievements, your child's happiness for your happiness, your child's life for your life, even if this confusion happens only every now and then, this chapter is especially for you. You see, you still matter even though you've become a parent. You've got to make sure you're walking your own life path, not only for your own sake, but for your kids' sake too. The research shows that kids think of their parents as heroes. They look up to us more than to any other adult figure in their lives. We are their biggest role models. But when they look up to us, can we be proud of what they see? Do we show them a harried, stressed out person who's constantly staring at a smartphone, tablet, or computer, and who seems to care only about whether homework has been completed and grades or scores have been obtained and the soccer carpool runs on time? Or do we show up in their lives as a person who walks through the world feeling good about ourselves, doing work that plays to our strengths and resonates with our values, and who makes time for meaningful human connection with them and with others? So our kids notice everything we do and everything we don't do, and it's just important that we model for them the building of a good life. I was with a bunch of new people this last week that I'd never met before working on a team, a volunteer team, and it is interesting to listen to people answer the question, what do you do in your free time? What are you enjoying for fun? You know, especially for those of us who are in the thick of parenting. And then there are some people on the team who are, have grown and flown all their kids. And then there are some people on the team who have yet to embark on parenthood yet. So it's really interesting to have that conversation and just to remember what it was like to have all the free time and then balance it now as a parent and then see the people who are getting that free time back. And I can see the value in really having some hobbies and some people, some relationships that you want to invest in outside of your kids. So just yeah. an observation. I made. And we've talked about that recently too. I feel like in general, we've, we've tried to remember to stay married, not just spent all your time on the kids, even though it does take a lot of time, but mm -hmm. to remember to spend time with each other to maintain our relationship, but also to demonstrate to them that there are other relationships you have as an adult mm -hmm. and trying to pick up more hobbies recently, especially right. to, to demonstrate that to them. And to make sure that there's something left mm -hmm. when they move out, right? Absolutely. Um, she says, it's not selfish to make ample room for the things we value in life. It's critically important. In order to be good role models, we need to put ourselves first. And she goes on to talk about how the most obvious example, and it gets used all throughout parenting literature, is the oxygen mask, right? You got to secure when you're on an airplane and there's an emergency, you have to secure your own oxygen mask before securing anybody else's. But then she goes on to say, we get the same advice from financial planners, right? We have to secure our own retirement before we overinvest in college savings for our kids. And plenty of examples, um, in the field of psychology, humans are at our most capable and of our most use to others when we first looked after ourselves. So she's like, it starts with the oxygen mask analogy, but then really think about how it plays out into all these different areas of life. We really do have to manage our own beings to be our best for our children. Then she outlines some steps for how to look after yourself, which will then make you a better parent. So she has six steps to that. So number one, discover your passion and purpose and chart your path accordingly. So she says, despite whatever you think your kid is not your passion, you have something in your life that you were passionate about before your kids came along. There's something written on your heart that is your purpose and don't 
give that up just because you're a parent. If anything, lean into it more fully so that your children can see what it's like to lean fully into um, the thing that they're made to do. Um, she talks about Myers-Briggs and some other strength finder, things like that to help you find your life's purpose if you are still in search of that. Number two, she says, learn to say no. And if you're going to live deeper into your passion, you have to say no to some things to make the margin in your life to be able to do that. Number three, she says, prioritize your health and wellness. A lot of us put ourselves aside as we manage all these schedules and all these things. And she says, no, no, no. Our kids need to see us managing our health and wellness um, as a model for them as well. Number four, make time for your most important relationships. It's good for us to see our friends. It's good for them to see us going out together with each other and to see us connecting with our friends so that they know it's important to have relationships throughout your life. Um, Sean Acorn, The Happiness Advantage, outlines social investment as the most important impact as to whether or not we're happy being connected to other humans. And I think that definitely means beyond our children. Like who do we have full and complete relationships with that we can share anything with? Because there is a boundary there. There are a lot of things we talk about with each other that we've never talked to our children about. There are a lot of things that we talk to our friends about to work out and work through that would be completely inappropriate for us to talk to our children about. So we really need those connections in those most important relationships, finding them, pursuing them, all that. And then this I thought was interesting. Number five, she says, interrogate your relationship with money. Fear, if you have fear around money, that can cause a lot of overparenting and a lot of pressure on a kid. And so in terms of scholarships and all that, so she says, your fear is not going to help your child succeed in the world. Put on your financial oxygen mask first by number one, finding work that's meaningful to you. Number two, living within your means. And three, tending to your retirement fund. So I thought that was an interesting piece to throw. And I don't really think about that in terms of like taking care of the self, but it makes sense when she explains it. Practicing kindness and gratitude. I mean, this is just reiterated through every book that I read about parenting or about psychology or about developing the self. Everything says gratitude first. If you can look for the things that you're thankful for, you can train your brain to always find those things. And overall, it leads to happier, healthier, better life. And then she talks about how our kids need a human parent, not a super mom or super dad. They need a real human being who's living and breathing and making mistakes and recovering from the mistakes and modeling resilience and all the things that we want our kids to be. I think about that, not just from the growth mindset of admitting that you're wrong, which I know I, I've had to work on admitting I'm wrong to the kids and say, hey, I did the best that I could. Now I know better and I want to do differently. But apologizing to them for saying, hey, I wish that I could have been better in that moment and I wasn't. But I think back to um, love and logic parenting too is about that you make the best decision you can and you admit when you're wrong and you move on from that. Yeah, so part of showing our humanity is saying, hey, I made a mistake. That's being a human parent versus being a super parent, right? Acknowledging the parts of us that make us human, which also make us you know, tend to have a tendency towards failure in some ways. So yeah, I think that's good. All right. And then in chapter 22, she says, be the parent you want to be. And I think this is so interesting how she opens this chapter. She says, Mahatma Gandhi is credited with the pithy phrase, be the change you wish to see in the world. But it appears that he actually said something both more philosophical and more practical. If we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. 
As a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change toward him. We need not wait to see what others do. And I love that. I think that is so, so good. So she says, what if changing the way we parent didn't involve waiting for all of society to change, but was as simple as acknowledging the ideas presented in this book and pivoting our approach a little bit to raise our kids accordingly. And then she says, what if we pivoted towards these principles? Number one, the world is much safer than we've been led to believe and our children need to learn how to thrive in it rather than be protected from it. Number two, a checklisted childhood designed to lead to a narrow definition of success robs children of the proper development opportunities of childhood and can lead to psychological harm. Number three, a child learns, grows, and ultimately succeeds by diving into what interests them doing and thinking for themselves, trying and failing and trying again, and developing mastery through effort. And then number four, a family life is richer and more rewarding for all when parents aren't hovering over and facilitating every moment of a kid's life. So I like that because she's made a lot of suggestions. I mean, this is page 287 of this book. She's made a lot of suggestions in the preceding pages and it's really easy to get overwhelmed. But if we can focus on those four things, I think the world will be better for that. And then she talks about how to stand up to other adults. Because when you're parenting in a way that's counterculture, a lot of times people will make comments to you. I think about our Cub Scout pack that our youngest is in and that our middle guy went through. I don't go to any Cub Scout events, really. I mean, I do when they're big. Mm -hmm. But I have had to step out of that because I was also a Girl Scout troop leader and I was, you know, making sure that whichever kids weren't at Cub Scouts were having their needs met and stuff. So I've often wondered, do the Cub Scout parents think you're a single dad or do they like understand that I'm around? I just can't be at everything because we have three kids and we just have a lot of stuff going on. So I do. I think about that. Like the things that we don't show up for, I shouldn't say I'm concerned about the judgment because I honestly can, can truthfully say I don't really care, but I do wonder if people think, man, those poor boys, their mom never comes to Cub Scouts. (laughs) Whenever (laughs) people have mentioned it, I always, I say, oh, she has a bunch of other stuff to do and I'll call it a couple of things that you do without me. And there are plenty of, of parenting that you do without me because I have involvement in things like Boy Scouts or, or Cub Scouts or things like that. But mm-hmm. um, you had mentioned a bit earlier about the giving everything, like making your kids the absolute first priority and then being, I feel like there's that, this idealized parent of you have to be completely selfless and you have to give everything and you have to, if there's ever a decision between what's good for you and what's good for your kid, you have to choose what's good for the kid. But mm-hmm. I mean, this is, you have to make some distinctions too in what right. you're doing and you have to pick some activities you're going to do and support. And then you have to make sure you work on yourself and you have to, that's going to come with some judgment from other parents just because of the nature that mm-hmm. there are parents who pour themselves out completely and they want to feel justified in that too. And so mm-hmm. they look at parents who don't do that and think, well, they should be trying harder, but you still have to do what's right for you. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Standing up to other parents. And she doesn't say this confrontationally. She's not saying go out there and, you know, wreak havoc on behalf of us. <laughs> She's saying, <laughs> Just here are some things you can say when people wonder why you do things the way you do if you're parenting in this different way. So 
Number one, when parents referee. So this is when there's a dispute over toys or turns or anything like that. And a parent wants to get involved and you don't want to get involved. So she says to politely and confidently say, maybe I'm old fashioned, but I really prefer to let the kids try to work it out. I know it can be hard to step back, but I think it's how kids learn. That's a great script for that scenario. When parents want to chauffeur, so this is if another parent wants to drive your kids somewhere, but you'd prefer for them to walk or bike or take public transportation. She says, say, again, politely and confidently, no thanks, I really prefer that she go on her own. I'm confident she has the street smarts she needs and I want to help her become more independent. When parents fetch and carry. So if you overhear parents lamenting about having to drive their kids forgotten lunchbox or backpack or homework to school, you might try with a smile or a laugh, just saying, Ugh, I make my kids suffer. Otherwise, they'll keep assuming I'll do it. That's a love and logic thing, too. Mm-hmm. Resisting the bailout. Now, I think about that. It's so easy to take them their lunch or take mm-hmm. the homework they forgot. Or, I mean, I'll get calls from school 15 minutes after I drop them off to say, oh, I forgot this thing. And it's so easy to fix that problem. But I have to remember, like, is it a problem that really needs to be fixed? Or is it a lesson that they can learn? Not trying to punish them, but to say... If they're going to continue to forget that and I'm going to bring it every single day, then that becomes the habit. So I have to break that to teach them that they can do it on their own. Right. And that they can, they're capable of remembering Mm. and being responsible for things. You know, when they're freshmen in college and a paper's due at midnight, you can't turn their paper in for them at 1215. You know what I mean? So the cost is lower now. They've got to figure it out now. And then she says, when parents are personal assistants... Let your friends know that you're putting an end to playing concierge and you'll no longer do for or clean up after your child beyond an age where it's appropriate to do so. So, of course, I can do it faster or better, but she's got to learn this stuff for herself. I'm not going to be that parent who shows up to do everything for them in college. And then she says, say you're with some friends out for a walk, having coffee or cocktails or at a book club, the golf course, the PTA, and your kid texts or calls you with a minor catastrophe. She says, just let your friends hear you say, I'm sorry to hear that, honey. How are you going to solve that? I love that too. When parents do their child's homework, whether your kid is in kindergarten, 12th grade, or somewhere in between, raise your hand at back to school night and ask, what is your policy about parental involvement in homework? Can you help us understand where and how to draw the line when it comes to math, essays, and school projects? I love that idea mm-hmm. too. And as a person who's been in education, I think Megan and I talked about this on that one episode where this came up earlier mm-hmm. on in the book. Like the teachers know. If you're doing your kid's project for them or really close to for them, we know. <laughs> like we know whether a child created a product or a parent created a product. We know every time. Just Put that in your pocket too as you think about doing your child's homework for them or interfering at a high level. When parents do all the chores, she says, when you're at PTA, scouts, or some other meeting involving projects, parents, and children, be the voice in the room that says, how can we give our kids more responsibility for this job, activity, event, or project? I don't want them to just stand around while we do all the work. And the best example I can think of this in our parenting life is Boy Scouts. Because when our boys leave Cub Scouts, cross over into that Boy Scout troop, those boys in their patrols plan the meeting, set up for the meeting, run the meeting, and then have to do all the breakdown and cleanup. They have to manage their own ranks, all of that stuff. So I think that's just such a good example. And then I think back to my time as a Girl Scout leader too with our daughter, their whole focus in Girl Scouts is that it becomes girl-led. So when they're little, 
the troop leader plans the activities and all that stuff. And then basically as they grow through the program, the adult leaders start to hand off aspects of the meetings and the experiences and stuff. And then by the end, it culminates in the Girl Scout Gold Award project, which is a self-driven, self-planned and self-completed philanthropy project involving a team. I think scouting is just a good example when it comes to this particular element of raising an adult. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a great example. I, I There are plenty of times, not just where I was surprised with the transition of we show up to the first meeting and the adults are in the periphery. They're not running the meeting. The scouts are doing everything. But even when I have tried to ask another leader, hey, I think that my son is getting close to this achievement. What does he need to do next? Or when we're at a camp out and I go over to offer some help and the older scouts or the other adults will say, hey, what do you need? Can we help you out? And when I when I don't need help, I'm trying to offer it. They'll say, nope, we've got this. Like, don't worry about it. The scouts will figure it out. And if your son thinks he's close to the achievement, he's welcome to come talk to me and I will sign off if he's ready or let him know what's next. And so I, I feel like as much as it's training for our kids to do things independently, it's training for me as a parent to not be involved. That's been as hard. How as, to step back. Yeah. yeah. Sitting at the outside and saying, you know what? I can remind him, but I really, I can't do it for him. And so I need to sit at the outside and encourage him. That's my role. Well, and it's true. Kind of just to reiterate what she's saying here. Like we live in a society where it feels like if your kid is not your laser beam focus and you're not, you know, showing up and doing all this stuff at an extreme level, then you're not the best parent. But in actuality, we really do have to parent ourselves out of a job. We just do, you know? In some ways, it seems like the best way to show up is not to show up and do it all. (laughs) Now, I agree, but we have to be careful to say... You don't want to fall in the neglect zone. Like you got to show up, but well, not sure, you for show everything up, but all the time, right? not to show up and run everything for them and make sure it goes flawlessly. Right. Number seven here. When parents chart their kid's life path. So when she said, when people ask you where your kid is heading academically or career-wise, say joyfully, I really have no idea. It's entirely up to him. Or I want her to just figure out what she's good at and what she loves. Or I want them to make the most of that, whatever that is. Or they're really into hiking, painting, books, puzzles, numbers. I'm not sure what they'll do with that, but I'm supporting them in developing that talent and interest. I loved that. And then this one too. When you hear people say that their kid has to do a certain thing or get to a certain level of something for college, she says laugh or sigh with a smile as you say, well, we've stopped trying to predict what some small set of colleges may want. And we've started just living our life, which turns out to feel much better which I just love that. The race for college, if you, especially if you live in an affluent area, is just intense. It's very intense. Okay, number eight, when parents have a narrow, sometimes very narrow, mindset about colleges. She says, tell your friends, I'd just love it if my daughter would consider Carleton or Whitman or our strong city college and offer one reason why. The next one, she says, when parents don't listen to kids, our kids wish we were less stressed out about their every outcome. They want to be loved for who they are. They want to be encouraged to do more of what they're good at. They want to do for themselves. Think about whether you can be that person in your friend group who says, my kid wants me to back off from their activities, their high school work, their college applications, their college choices, and I am. It's better for both of us. We've tried to set expectations and instill good values. The rest is up to them. I love that. So love that. And then she talks a little bit about building a community 
of parents who think how you think a little bit, not to necessarily, you know, always surround yourself by people that think the same way you do, but that in this can, in this case, it's a good idea to have some parents around you who also believe that it's best to let our kids do for themselves what they can. She moves into be alert and inspired by those who walk the walk. So she says we should all be looking for parents appropriately involved in their kids' schooling, parents who put sports and other extracurricular activities into perspective, parents who love and support the kids they've got, and parents who find a community that supports their child-raising values. So I thought those were good points of focus. And then she concludes. She talks about how she learned so much during the decade she spent as Stanford's Dean of Freshmen. And she closes by saying this. In the meantime, despite what's wrong with the college admission system and the many, many other social and cultural factors that are beyond our control as parents, we've got children who need dinner tonight and breakfast tomorrow morning and a society and world that are depending on us to raise our children well. Join me in doing right by those children, by leaving the herd of hoverers, by fostering independence, not dependence, and by supporting them in being who they are, rather than telling them who and what to be. Together, we can push the parenting pendulum back in the other direction toward raising adults. And that's how she closes it. This is a good, good book. Highly recommend. Um, just really to get us focused on the things that matter in terms of long-term outcomes for our kids. And I know we talk all the time Mm -hmm. and we have since they were little, what does this look like in adulthood? Can I permit or allow this now based on how it's going to play out in the long run? Right. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's a good perspective. Do you have any final thoughts? Uh, I think there, there's been a lot I know that we've talked about that came from this book and it's a, it's great perspective. It kind of goes both ways. The, what can I support now because it's going to be great in adulthood and what are the things that frustrate me now, but I know we're going to serve them well in adulthood. And so I almost tolerate those things, but. Well, and option number three, what do we look at now that we're like, oh, <laughs> we are not raising that guy in the office. We got to, we got to squash that right now. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So that was a long book, had a lot of great ideas. There were three episodes on it. If you had to distill that down to one core idea or one core thing that you've learned from reading it, what would that be? I mean, I think the essence of her main point is we cannot do for our children what they can do for themselves. We have to let them do what they're capable of doing so that they will become their own people and the best version of themselves. And I think it comes down to everything she talked about. We have to let them do chores at the level they can do it. We have to let them manage their schoolwork at the level they can do it. We have to let them manage their clubs and activities and organizations at the level they can do it. All of that, just not taking our kids' power from them, letting them have the power that is inherently theirs by what they're capable of doing, making sure that that power stays in their hands. All right, we will see you next time. Remember, whatever you're facing in parenting, it won't always be this way.